0: This is Keaton DC with Max and Brent, unlocking the market on the district's first real estate podcast. And now here are your hosts, Max Raven and Brent Jackson.
1: So today we have Jim Bell on our show. I want to talk about recent challenges in our current marketplace. So this is a tough market. You work with a lot of sellers. Do you work with buyers also?
2: I do. My business is basically split 50-50 between buyers and sellers. I enjoy both sides of the process. And I would say that I generally lean more towards the listing side. Right, um, Max. I think you work with probably more buyers currently, yeah. percentage than mm-hmm. I do. Yep. And Brett, your team is, I think, very well balanced between the two. So
3: we
1: are. So, I mean, for you, you said uh, you're working with more sellers. Is that a personal preference, or is it just the way your business is led? Because I'm sure, uh, I'm sure, I'm sure, a lot of people. Come to you, you know, they're being referred to you. They're looking for your help. They know your name. They're like, please help us find something, or please help my cousin find a condo. You know, what what please help me? Please. please, Right. (laughs) So, you know, so if you're I and I know working with the seller, working with a seller, another agent told me this one time. They said, I prefer to work with a seller. I was like, well, why? And they said, because the seller usually really actually wants to sell. The buyer it's a little questionable. So Uh,
2: I, yeah, some years ago I had a great mentor who works with a different firm than uh, Sotheby's. Tell me one thing that's very clear buyers. Sometimes you can't really trust, right? Buyers will buy. You can work with a buyer for a year and they will sometimes perhaps go under contract with another agent because it was more convenient more expedient for that particular transaction. But there are certain ways where you are not legally bound to a buyer, where you are legally bound to a seller uh, through a listing agreement. So if you have a listing, you have a paycheck, as the uh, old adage goes. And that's not the case necessarily with a buyer. So there there are challenges for both of them, for sure. But also as a listing agent, sometimes because
3: Predominantly, my book of business, it's 70% listings, 30% buyers. But there is a level of stress on your shoulders because, to your point, if you haven't done the legwork up front, you've overpriced it or you've misstaged it or not staged it at all or or whatnot. You're sitting there with expenses on expenses, and it's not selling. And then the seller starts to get a little frustrated with you. So there's a level of stress there. Totally agree. Totally agree.
1: Well, how how do you manage uh, one of the higher-end listings that may take a long time to sell, one, two, three years to sell? How do you, how do you manage the expenses for that? And then also try to keep the sellers on your side.
2: I think setting expectations is your top priority with something like that. I had a meeting this morning in Calorama with a seller, and I said very clearly to them, looking at the data, if we don't price it correctly, then instead of selling in 30 days, it will sell in a year. And that's the average. You can look at the data, and the data will tell you that managing listings over long periods of time takes patience. It takes a lot of, I would say, hand-holding. I, I talk to my clients. I have a very active engagement with all of my clients mm-hmm. when we're sort of what I call in the zone. So if you are a, have an active listing with me or you're an active buyer, I will probably talk to you, if not every single day, every other day you will get a communication from me. Probably not a phone call, but either a text or an email. But we are in the zone and we're constantly engaged. And that's even with listings I've had for a year because you are continually trying to revise the data and the buyers and the sellers because on listings like that, uh, you can go from zero to a 100% with one buyer. So you can go from being active to under contract with just one person. And when you've got these big deals, you go from zero to a $5 million sale with one person. And you have to keep that in mind. So it's like hitting home runs. So most of what I have to do out there every single day is hit home runs or or cook steak with you, Max, uh, (laughs) instead of hamburgers and hot dogs that Brett uh, has the pleasure of cooking more often, which uh, is a better business model to have both steaks and hamburgers and hot dogs, not to yes, use a food indeed. analogy, yes, to, but to have both food groups is better than just having the one food group. And that's a blind spot about luxury real estate is having too much of that steak.
1: I've got one other quick question for you. This is sort of like a role playing, I guess. So we, I'm working on a listing uh, with my team that's a high end listing in Maryland. Okay, mm-hmm. and we got it under contract quickly. And we were excited about that because we felt like it was the kind of listing that if we didn't get a, a contract quickly on it, it could be the kind of thing that is going to sit for a very long time with price reductions, et cetera. Unfortunately, the buyers did an inspection and it came back with myriad items. Items that can be fixed, right? We can fix anything with money and time, but these buyers have wanted no part of it. So now we're stuck with a home inspection, like a mega home inspection and no deal and we have to go back to the market. So have you ever dealt with anything like that?
2: I've dealt with that, but it's not gone back on the market. Okay. As you know, it depends state by state on disclosure and disclaimer. Maryland has a very different disclaimer disclosure uh, law as opposed to D.C. So in that case, as we're role-playing, if that house were in D.C., Mm -hmm. the seller would have to disclose all of those items. Um, And that puts a big responsibility back on the seller. So you have more likely the seller would take an active approach in curing those defects in D.C. as opposed to other markets. And hopefully the buyer would not back out. That's been the way I've managed it in the past. uh, And it's been successful in that way.
1: Well, that was the correct broker answer and you passed. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) All right. So, Jim. So you yes, start off yes, sir. you started <laughs> off in the in the mortgage business, then yeah. you moved into real estate sales, and yes. so you at one point started your own brokerage
2: yes, Beasley real
1: estate, so Very proud of that so Beasley Real estate was a small brokerage in d c mm-hmm. about how many how many agents did you have at the brokerage when you were at your maximum
2: uh peak, I'm gonna guess at this and say we had. Let's just say 25 or 26 brokers. Okay. They all had to do a minimum of $10 million a year. They had to be in the business for a minimum of 10 years. And we called it our 10-10 principle. So, so I mean, I was always impressed. I know you tried to recruit us. Um,
3: You're a top power player agent. I was so like enamored with your pitch. Uh your services, you grew Beasley to be, you know, an industry leader in
2: a very short amount of time.
3: If you want Thank to share
1: you. with us like how you did that. Thank very you. competitive company quickly. Yeah.
2: Right. So I think the concept of the company was very different than business models that are currently available. Uh, very simply for example, Sotheby's and the other companies in this market they basically act as an umbrella. We're all under the umbrella where I flipped that business model uh, to create one that the agent was first and foremost the company's priority in promoting and the company was the basically the flat form or the foundation point. So we were on the bottom and the agent was on the top. Right now it's a inverse business model with basically every other business model that's out there. And that's a uh, that's one of the reasons we grew so quickly. As I mentioned earlier, we had a principle of, of recruiting that was very important, both from a structure point of view, from an economic point of view, from a management point of view. Every single agent that came in the door had to be in the business for 10 years uh, and have a minimum production of 10 million a year. That solved a lot of problems. Mm-hmm. you were not training new agents. Everybody that sat at the table, all had a meeting once a week. We had 100% attendance at every meeting. It was incredible because it was sort of like nights at the round table. Everybody was a colleague of the other person. You knew their business, they knew yours. And trust, let's go back to that foundation point. Trust was huge. Everybody trusted each other and and they had to grow to appreciate and, and gain that trust with one another because in the beginning or as we grew, they didn't really know the new guy coming in. But when they could sit at the table and do a deal at the table with people, they not only were trusting those people, but then they started to make money. And that helped everything grow very quickly. You had a very impressive list of uh, agents on your team. But thank you. Going from
3: zero to 60 in three seconds, I mean, from zero to two years, what was your volume at the end of two years?
2: I think we're, uh, you know, probably around 300 million when we. Wrapped up. We were just under six hundred million. And And
1: what year? What important to mention? What year was this?
2: So we started in two thousand twelve, and we I officially closed it February of two thousand
1: seventeen. So twenty seventeen. What was the sea change? What happened?
2: Compass was not in my business. Compass was not in my business plan, and they were. They were the market disruption player, just sort of like Uber is, just sort of like uh, there's a lot of market disruption companies out there that operate on a different business model. They wanted to buy the firm at some point, uh, and I declined that offer. As a result, they went on a direct recruiting campaign uh, and recruited everybody out of the company. So we lost everybody within two weeks.
1: That's intense. That's correct. But from my intense. understanding,
3: Compass's first acquisition was DC. They went from New York to DC right. to where right. they are now. So, right. so they were he, super aggressive.
2: Super aggressive, and they've done this. They did the same thing in every major market, where mm-hmm. they would just go into small brokerages and recruit those people out. And it it makes better business sense to do that as opposed to a, a one off. Recruiting model that most large brokerages have now, so they would bring in ten or twenty people at a time through these companies, and they would just leave the companies behind. And I was just, it just I just happened to be the owner of one of those companies. Uh, it wasn't anything personal, so
3: right. Yeah. And essentially, you were probably the first one in the compass's short ten year that they actually did this to. No, I mean, like, no, I mean, take that as a compliment because sure. they moved into DC and they targeted
2: you. Came after me, yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, you know, that's extremely frustrating. I mean, you're you're building this brokerage. You've got some of the team of top quality brokers that you've sort of handpicked. They've come to work with you. They've got a dream. It's a dream. Yeah, yeah, they've got the uh, the whole vision with you. And then Compass comes in and says, "Here's a bunch of money. You want it?" And they're like, "See ya." Yep. Yeah.
2: Yep. And as as everyone left, they said, "It's just business, not personal." Yeah. So I was diving, diving into the
3: details a little bit here, because I'm fascinated, right? Again, people ask us all the time, like, when are you going to start your own brokerage? But you're a very successful agent in your own right. I mean, like, how do you manage running a team at a firm and also, you know, keeping the title King of Calorama?
2: I think if you balance it properly, everybody's helping everybody out. And in that particular business model, we were sharing staff. Everybody was really helping everybody out. And don't forget, it's a very different business model. In that, the core of the company, the staff in the company itself, were helping all the individual agents with neighborhood campaigns. Remember the film series we did for every neighborhood, mm-hmm. uh, the summer film series. They did that anytime we had a sort of a uh, somebody's raising money for breast cancer, uh, like a cocktail party. The core staff at the company handled every detailed. And the agent just really showed up. So it, it was really a, a management goal to assist people to take care of all these business building projects and then let them go out and do the actual work of being an agent. And I benefited from that as well because they were also doing the same thing for me as they were doing for all the other agents. Our typical agent came in making on average three to $400,000 a year and on average, they were making over a million dollars a year when they
1: left. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Wow! That's yeah. that's amazing.
2: I'm not sure who was running your marketing,
3: but I was always impressed with the marketing because you might have been the first in D.C. that did the lifestyle ads. And I remember, I don't know if it was bus signs or bike share mm-hmm. ads, but it was the
2: lifestyle ad and it had the face right. of the agent. Um, right. and I just That was impressive to me. One thing that I really wanted to impress upon the public is that agents are people too. And by putting your very candid photo, and I don't know if you guys remember, but these were not doctored pictures. They were not Mm -hmm. airbrushed at all. They were very Annie Leibovitz-styled black and white photos, a very large picture of someone's head. And underneath each one of them was, the number one thing was how they gave back to their community and and how they supported their community. The second thing was something related to that. Uh, So we had like three or four, Bullet points, but the very bottom bullet point of the three or four was their production. So first, there are people. first they're supporting the community and helping people out. but the last bullet point was their actual production, and I think that got so many people's attention that what ended up happening and we were obviously trying to engineer this in such a way that it became a social media phenomenon in that you would see your friend who happens to be an agent on the little billboard and you go over and you take a picture of the billboard with them right. and you'd post it Tagged. on social media and it just took off on like fire. And then guess what? More people started talking about them and guess what? They then got more business and it just one thing after the next snowballed. But the base point for that firm was philanthropy. We supported over 200 different philanthropy projects as a, as a relatively young company. And that was a definitely a foundation point.
1: I think that's why I think when it, uh, the brokerage first started, it was a little intimidating because you guys were taking on a lot of new different directions with the, like doing things that other traditional brokerages in D.C. had certainly not done. And then, you know, if we look at the way brokerages are run now, uh, especially in our area here, they're doing a lot of those things now that right. you were doing... Right you know, almost 10 years ago.
2: And I think we had, we were the first to have an app. We had a mobile app before anybody else. Uh, So we had a philosophy of pushing and pushing information to people. So when we released something or we had a news event or we had a new property, we would push that information, push it out to people like you do things now, but we were doing it back in 2012 on all channels email uh social media old school actual physical mail every communication outlet that was available we were pushing that out and that one thing helped the next and which helped the next and it just helped snowball everything and helped everybody grow their business but that is certainly it it was definitely way ahead of its ahead of its time yes mm-hmm.
1: so knowing okay so you had a brokerage compass came in you know, Compass has been heavily recruiting out of every brokerage. You know, they're right, they're right. they're and now they've now they're public. So yep. they they've achieved their goal of going public. Of course, growth is the next level, right? They need to grow mm-hmm. their valuation. Like, but beyond that, you know, we have other sort of disruptors in the business. We have Zillow is still in here. Uh, they're starting to do loans. They're starting to do, you know they're doing a little bit of everything. Redfin's got their own Redfin, loan division.
2: Correct. You know, yep. so
1: where where do you see? Yep our industry going, I mean, we're, we're what you would call maybe traditional, a traditional brokerage. You know, we're out here working with the clients, we're paying for marketing ourselves, et cetera, et cetera. Where do you see this industry heading with all this new technology and the intensity?
2: I think, I think we'll always have a place in the market, but it will depend on the market and it will depend on the price range. I think as agents in our marketplace, this is a very wealthy city with a very expensive housing market as you trend downward, you have much more use of apps, much more use of other mediums that are more cost-effective like Redfin uh, as the price range drops because you can't afford traditional marketing. If you're selling a condo, that costs or a house, quite frankly, that costs only 152 to thousand dollars. There is no marketing package you can pay for that because it, it, your, your commission right. would be destroyed. Uh, by one ad in a local newspaper, you can't do it. So that that has to be the alternative. Um, so I think we're going to probably be, as things move on, a little more private client oriented, where we are people choose to use us that uh, know the value of what we bring to the table. I wouldn't say that we're the Tiffany's of real estate, but I think it will vector into that space where we will be the the choice that some, someone's going to choose to use us, not the cheaper alternative, mm-hmm. but that also limits your market share. Um, so yeah, our, I think our overall market share will diminish over time, but the volume of dollar I think will increase because our, the actual price of what we're selling continues to go up. Sure. Do you miss running your own brokerage? I do. I do. Um, I miss sort of being Papa bear and, the, the one that, you know, I had a lot of people that I loved and trusted uh, within that firm. And it was a family and I, I certainly miss that. It was uh, a, a wonderful experience uh, and I, I would never regret doing that. And it was just, you know, it, these are changes in business that happen to anybody. Someone asked me about a year afterwards, would I do it again? And I, the answer to the question was surprising. Um, and I said, no. And I said, and they said, why? And they said, well, I, I said, because people can change their mind again. I could go out and do all this again, and the business could change again. And there, yeah, could, be there could be another market disruptor that that came along. So it's a huge um, risk. Yeah, it's a big risk. But let's flip the question on that. Let's say that another young buck
3: came up to you, high aspirations, and they want to start their own brokerage. What piece of advice
2: would you give them? My immediate response would not be to tell them not to do it. But within the context of a certain business model, I think there's a space for a lot of different things that are happening in the marketplace. The the difference is the unique nature of the business model. Beasley was a very unique business model. I don't know if you guys remember, but we were chosen to be interviewed by the um, the, the top ten uh, real estate CEOs uh, in Japan were touring America and they were interviewing companies in each major city. Uh, and they were choosing two companies to interview their business models. And this is uh, Yamura Real Estate and in, in Tokyo. These are like billion dollar firms with a B. And they chose Beasley Real Estate to interview. So, you know, all of a sudden, we, I thought it was a joke at first, but they were interviewing Long and Foster and they were interviewing Beasley. And at the appointed date, we had a busload of, Japanese real estate CEOs come into the office and we had a big roundtable meeting with all of our agents and they really examined the business model and they were fascinated and they really loved the the actual business model itself. So unless you have some, a business model that is going to, in today's date, going to make a real difference, then you, you should perhaps not make that jump without significant you know, thought. Um, but if you can make a difference in another slice of it, sure. But finding something unique these days is very hard. Unique.
1: Yeah, it's yes. hard to like reinvent this wheel. Like again, in, 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 again, in this type right. of capacity, and especially right. when you've got companies that are already loaded with right. capital. Right. So. Right. Yeah.
2: Right. Yeah. Right. How did you arrive on the name Beasley? Beasley. I was adamant about not naming the firm after myself because uh, that wasn't the point of it. This was the the company model was to be a um, we were to be the foundation point or the silent partner helping people grow. And so Beasley was my grandfather's name, so we had to call it something. So I just called it Beasley Real Estate, and nobody knew who it was, and it was totally fine that nobody knew who it was. But I did not want to call it my company because it wasn't that it was a group effort of a bunch of like-minded individuals that wanted to make a difference in the marketplace and in dc in general and they they made that difference and they certainly made their mark
1: well jim you know what you're a titan of dc real estate we really appreciate you coming on here you shared a lot of great stuff the story of your brokerage is something else i mean uh, not many it's other people it's really fascinating and you know your career is still like you came back continued on and you're still at the top of the game so thank kudos. you guys yeah congratulations
2: thank you. thank you and I'll cook for you both yeah
1: right on awesome. Appreciate that.
2: all right thanks guys thanks Joe. have a good one Charles
0: Thanks for listening to Keaton DC with your hosts, Max and Brent. Unlocking the market on a district's first real estate podcast. Remember to subscribe to Keaton DC on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen. Follow us on Instagram at Raven Max and at Brent E. Jackson. And follow Max on TikTok at Raven underscore properties <laughs>